It's the Victorian Variety Show. Welcome to the very first full episode of the Victorian Variety Show. My name is Marissa, and I'm really excited about bringing this podcast to you. I've been the host of the Marissa's Wicked Word Nosh podcast, which is geared mainly toward writers and readers, for almost two years now. But I also greatly enjoy history. And the Victorian era is a favorite of mine, largely because a lot of the topics I'm interested in either can be traced back to the Victorians or played a significant role in Victorian society and culture. So, I came up with the idea to do this podcast a few months ago in order to focus more on aspects of the Victorian life that I find particularly interesting. And I hope you will, too. I'm not an expert. I don't have a history degree or anything like that, but I really enjoy researching topics and sharing my findings with other people. And one of the reasons I'm so passionate about podcasting is that it allows me to do both of those things on a regular basis. So my intention at this point is to give you a new episode every two weeks. And my main reason for doing that is that I will continue to do the Marissa's Wicked Word Nosh podcast every other week as well. Before I go any further, I do want to say that if you aren't too familiar with Victorian customs, some of the topics I talk about in future episodes of this show might seem weird or strange to you because they're pretty far removed from contemporary practices that a lot of us are familiar with. You certainly wouldn't be the first to feel this way. If you look online, you can easily find articles with titles like The Mind-Boggling Weird Shit the Victorians Did and Ten Bizarre Inventions from the Victorian Era and Messed Up Things That Actually Happened in the Victorian Era because that's exactly what I did. I went online and I looked for some titles and pretty much I came up with uh, an embarrassment of riches right away. And for the record, I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting that you like weird things, or even referring to yourself as weird. I guess what I'm trying to say is, even though some of the topics I want to cover may seem very different from what you're used to, I'm going to strive not to use a tone that come across as judgmental. Instead, I will try to give you enough context for each topic so that it's easier for you to maybe understand how and why a certain practice came about. And perhaps you can even develop an appreciation for some of these practices. However, that's not to say that we need to appreciate everything about this era. If there's a belief or practice that I find offensive that's related to a topic that I'm covering, I will definitely make that clear as well. For my first episode, I did decide to focus on a topic that you may be more familiar with than others I discuss in the weeks and months to come. I'm going to take a look at the Penny Dreadful as a literary form. And I'm stressing that because if you downloaded this episode hoping for a discussion of the TV series Penny Dreadful, although I would truly love it if you decide to stay, I'm not going to be talking about it much in this episode, so 
I'm sorry to disappoint if that's what you were looking for. Now, this is not to say that I won't discuss the TV series at all on this podcast. The original, anyway. I think the Penny Dreadful City of Angels series that came out more recently takes place in the 1930s, which is several decades after the Victorian era ended, so I'm not going to talk about that. But the original Penny Dreadful is a good show that I enjoy, and you can learn quite a bit about the Victorian era from watching it. So who knows? I may very well bring up something I saw on that show at some point. But for now, I just would like to focus on what Wikipedia refers to as, quote, cheap popular serial literature produced during the 19th century in the United Kingdom, end quote. first Penny Dreadfuls appeared in the 1830s and were mostly referred to as quote-unquote Penny Bloods, until, as Judith Flanders points out in a piece on the British Library site, they became more commonly known as Penny Dreadfuls in the 1860s. You might have also heard them referred to as Penny Horribles or Penny Awfuls, that type of thing, but definitely Penny Dreadfuls seems to be the most commonly known term. These publications normally ran from 8 to 16 pages in length, featured vivid illustrations on their covers, and cost, you guessed it, one penny. These publications developed largely out of the demand for reading material that could be cheaply and widely distributed due to increased literacy rates among working-class men and women of this era. Although, as Violet Hamers explains in an article called Penny Dreadfuls of the Victorian Era, it wasn't uncommon for members of the so-called upper classes to also read them. According to Hepzibah Anderson in The Shocking Tale of the Penny Dreadful, the subject matter of Penny Dreadfuls was inspired by a rather wide variety of sources, including Gothic fiction, Jacobian tragedies, macabre folk tales, and ballads, as well as the news of the day and popular literary works of that time. According to Anderson, quote, these stories were essentially escapist in nature, narratives of rebellious wrongdoing for the powerless masses, end quote. Highwaymen were popular subjects for Penny Dreadfuls, as were creative murderers such as one I'm sure you've heard of, Sweeney Todd, a.k.a. the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, who first appeared in The String of Pearls in 1846. Also popular were supernatural beings such as Varney the Vampire and Springheel Jack, but a wide cast of characters was featured. As George A. Sala famously said, the world of the Penny Dreadful was one of, quote, of dormant peerages, of murderous baronets, and ladies of title addicted to the study of toxicology, of gypsies and brigand chiefs, men with masks and women with daggers, of stolen children, withered hags, heartless gamesters, nefarious roues, foreign princesses, Jesuit fathers, gravediggers, resurrection men, lunatics, and ghosts." End quote. So, many of the characters you were likely to find in any given Penny Dreadful 
were far from ordinary, to say the least. Plot-wise, there were some pretty big loopholes as well. To give you just one example, a character in the popular Gentleman Jack series was killed off twice. However, these characteristics can be seen in a lot of other types of what's often dubbed escapist literature. And although critics in academia and the media, among others, often criticize so-called escapist literature, other critics, myself included, have defended it because we feel that stories of this nature actually have some benefits for readers. In the case of Penny Dreadfuls, readers often didn't have a lot of money and their prospects for making more money and finding more satisfying careers were limited if they existed at all in most cases. In addition, their living conditions were often difficult. Flanders mentions that the most successful penny blood of all time, Mysteries of London, reflected the lives of many of its readers by, quote, contrasting the dreadful world of the slums with the decadent life of the careless rich, end quote. So I think it's safe to say that penny dreadfuls either gave readers the opportunity to escape from their lives for a while and live vicariously through the sensational protagonists of these tales, or gave them the feeling that they weren't alone against the aristocracy. However, as the age of the target readership started shifting downward in the second half of the 19th century, so that, as Anderson points out, penny dreadfuls were aimed mainly toward children, a quote-unquote moral panic ensued, to the point that publishers of penny dreadfuls were raided by police, and booksellers were prosecuted for selling them. Opponents of penny dreadfuls believed that they caused working-class youths to grow dissatisfied with their own lives and even glamorized criminal lifestyles, all of which, it was believed, inspired crime, violent behavior, and degeneracy. However, although the sensational subject matter of the penny dreadfuls undoubtedly drew the attention of moralists, Anderson suggests that their greatest fear was actually of the publication's readers, stating that Penny Dreadful's quote did showcase a certain giddy disregard for authority. How else to explain the campaign against the Wild Boys? Yes, it contained violence, a smattering of nudity and some flagellation, and yes, its boy heroes were petty criminals. But those same boys also helped others dodge child stealers and rescue drowning women. They were not without a moral code. It just wasn't the same as Victorian societies." End quote. So going back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about escapist literature actually having benefits for readers, it would be wrong to think that Penny Dreadfuls were without merit just because they were heavily criticized. I, for one, get the impression that critics focused on what they wanted to see and perhaps ignored positive aspects that weren't in line with the norms of their reality. With a few exceptions, such as the aforementioned Sweeney Todd, it seems that few examples of 19th century Penny Dreadfuls are widely known today. However, their influence is still widely felt. 
Hamers explains that Barney the Vampire was one of Bram Stoker's inspirations for Dracula. Anne suggests that Springheel Jack may have indirectly contributed to the creation of Batman. In addition, on my other podcast, I did an episode earlier this year on Pulp Fiction in the United States in the first half of the 20th century. Although most Penny Dreadfuls predated pulp stories by several decades, I see a number of similarities between the societal conditions that led to the development and reception of both types of literature, as well as similarities in subject matter and characters. And Anderson not only compares Penny Dreadfuls to the video games of today, but also sees them as a distant relative of fanfic and young adult, or YA, fiction. So that's my brief history of The Penny Dreadful. Thanks for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed it. I would love to know what you think. Please email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com. I've also set up a Twitter account specifically for this podcast at, at VictorianVariety1. And if you'd like, you can leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. That will help the show reach a lot more potential listeners. That's it for this week, and I will be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. In the meantime, I'm going to leave you with the last few stanzas of a poem that originally appeared in the British humor and satire magazine, Punch, which, according to Jerry Walton, in an article called Penny Bloods and the Penny Dreadfuls, defended the Penny Dreadful for the most part. You can find the full version of this poem on the Project Gutenberg website, but I will include links to the poem as well as all of the other sources I consulted in preparation for this episode in the show notes, and I really hope you'll check them out because there's a lot of really, really great information in there. So until next time, from the September 7th, 1895 edition of Punch, volume 109, if you want to be very exact, Here are the last four stanzas of That Poor Penny Dreadful. Enjoy. I have gloated o'er many a duel. I've heard of Don Pedro the Cruel. Heart pulsing at high rate, I've read how my pirate gave innocent parties their gruel. Yet I have ne'er felt a yearning for stabbing or robbing or burning. No highwayman clever and handsome has ever induced me to take the wrong turning. A lad who's a natural villain, when reading of robbing and killing, may feel wish to do so. But Shepard, like Crusoe, to your average boy's only thrilling. Ah, thousands on shockers have fed full, and yet not of crimes got a head full. Let us put down the vile, yet endeavor the while, to be just to the poor penny dreadful. Mm-hmm.